Okay, if we've got our Bibles, let's open them together or keep them open where they were on uh, that story that uh, Matt read to us a few moments ago from Acts, page 1106, if you've closed your uh, Bible and you've got one that's in uh, the pew. It's been telling the story, Acts that is, of the growth of the church. And as we know, it's an amazing story and there has been much celebration of it. Uh, after the day of Pentecost, the word of God continued to spread. Uh, then the word went to Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch, and now to the Gentiles following the conversion of uh, Cornelius. And then Saul was dramatically uh, converted and changed, and he was given this mission to go uh, to the Gentiles and so on. So uh, uh, lots of progress, lots of promise, lots of exciting things happening, lots of, uh, 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 of, of amazing moments of God being at work. For Philip to run us alongside an Ethiopian uh, chariot and find a man reading his Bible and all he needed was someone to explain it to him. Now there's an open door. And so they found time and time again, whether it was in the marketplace after the Holy Spirit had come upon them uh, and they began to speak not in their own tongue but in the tongues that uh, mimic, that replicated languages from around uh, the world. There was an open door. Even when uh, things started to look a bit stressful, like Peter and John being uh, drawn, uh, uh, pulled before the religious leaders and told not to speak about Jesus, the effect of that seemed to open a door. Instead of it dampening the disciples' enthusiasm, they were given renewed enthusiasm. And so it goes on. So, uh, so. Uh, as the story uh, unfolds. And you can look on every page almost and see an open door. Yet there's another story that is there on every page, almost in equal measure. Great things have been happening for sure, but by the time we get to chapter 12, the undercurrent, the backlash that had been building from chapter 12, Two, it began in chapter 2 with a bit of mockery. These guys are drunk, they said, to chapter 3 with them being in prison and so on and so forth. Built by chapter 12 to a crescendo of opposition against this young, fragile church. What started as a bit of mockery by some contemporaries had turned very quickly into a major uh, level of persecution where the, the, the king, King Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was at his level of authority decreeing that the Christian movement should be and must be stamped out. And in order to show that he was serious about it, he took two of their leaders, he took James and he killed him, and he took... Peter and put him in prison. Now, just imagine that for a moment in our context. Uh, imagine for a moment that, that I was killed and Neil Smith was put into prison of Colchester Road. Or let's put it the other way around because that's better. Uh, uh, Neil Smith was killed. Uh, uh, everyone said amen. No, I'm only kidding. He's a good mate of mine, uh, the minister of Colchester Road. Uh, he, he's in prison and, and I'm killed. You go, what would the church feel like? Dominant emotion? Glad to get rid of them. And then what? Fear. 
the dominant emotion, almost uh, 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 probably, uh, uh, without exception, that would unite us, would be fear. If they did that to them, what might they do to us? Wasn't that the same fear that gripped those disciples after the, uh, uh, Jesus was crucified? We're going to hide away now. If they did that to him, what might they do to us? And that's the scenario that these young Christians find themselves in, facing this new level of attack. But it was different. It was very different here, their response, uh, compared to what they did just after the crucifixion. And the two things that had made this profound difference to the way they respond here, to the way they responded back then, wasn't time, it hadn't been a long period of time, but it had been two absolutely central and totally relevant uh, historical moments. Number one, the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, then everything changes. If Jesus is alive, then whatever happens, there can always be resurrection. They couldn't imagine anything worse than God's son, Jesus, the Messiah, the one they thought would save the world, being nailed to a cross. There's nothing worse than that. Persecution at its ultimate level, to kill God's son, how bad can it get? If he can rise out of that, then there can always be resurrection. Now pause just for a moment, this isn't part of the main text so to speak, but just let's pause into an alley. Maybe this morning you need to hear that, but it doesn't matter what the situation is, there can always be resurrection. Hallelujah. Always. So as Jesus came to them behind locked doors, they began to change their understanding of what would be possible. If he lives... After that, then there can always be life after any kind of death. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit. Why? So that the reality of the Jesus who is alive may always be with them. And so every day for them became resurrection day because they were with the one who can always bring resurrection whatever kind of death there might be. Hallelujah. And so by the time they get to chapter 12, they're getting into the swing of it. And it seems the greater the opposition, the more they were believing God for resurrection. And so if you open, uh, have your Bible there in front of you, you get this power struggle, summarized in, in, in verse 5. Imagine the scene. Peter's in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The destructive power of Herod, the human ruler, is lining up against the saving power of God. On one side, all the power that this world can offer, the sword, the prison, the guards. On the other side, humanly, a powerless group of people calling on the God who has the power. And so you get this battle line, you know, a bit like a Braveheart or Narnia or whatever, you know, these big battle scenes that they have in films. Or, uh, 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 and uh, and the, this is the picture, they're lined up. All that the world can throw against God's people with the God who made the world. On a human level, that's the scenario. But there's another, and it's always true, there's another dimension going on all of the time. Uh, And if you have still got that Bible in front of you, turn to Ephesians 6. 
which is just a few pages on from, from where we were. Ephesians, one of the letters that was circulated around the uh, early church. Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Because here we get a glimpse of another reality that refers to the same human experience. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6, it's page 1177 if you've got a, a, a pew Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Verse 12. For our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now Paul is writing this, and he knows everything there is to know about human struggle for the gospel. What happened to Paul? It's not a rhetorical question. Name something that happened to him. He got stoned how many times? Well, you can read about it at your leisure. He got stoned a few times. He got whipped here and there. He got shipwrecked. He got lost at sea. Uh, many a thing that would have killed a man. He escaped, escaped for his life. People uh, mocked him because he had a, a thorn in his flesh. Apparently it was his height. They thought he was short and they laughed at him. How cruel can people be? We don't know what his thorn in his flesh was, but I imagine it was being short. Um, uh, and he, he knows everything. He, sometimes, he says sometimes we just went without everything. It wasn't that I didn't have my holiday and my car and my... I just went without everything. I I had to learn to be content with nothing. That's what my life was like. So he struggled in every way on a human level for the gospel. And yet, he writes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's what it looks like. But for as long as you only see that struggle, you will miss the point and be largely ineffective in kingdom purpose. Because behind the human struggle of flesh and blood are powers and principalities and rulers of this dark age. Which is why later on in the New Testament, we're reminded by John in 1 John that the one who is in us, the ruler that is in us, is greater than the ruler that's in the world. Why? Because we need to know it every single day if we're to stand firm. My temptation would have been, if Herod was lined up against us, if he just killed our best leader, and our second leader was in prison, waiting to be killed at a festival time, humanly, I would have easily decided that we'd lost. And if you could only see it from a human perspective, the show is over, wouldn't you have thought? And if you look at what's going on in our world, it's easy to think that we've lost but it's not the whole story. You need to see what isn't immediately obvious. There is a spiritual reality that's behind this earthly one. And if you're now confused about the end result, you can look at the end of the book and you can realize that we win. Okay, we win. Yeah, we win. We need to relax into that and live in the fullness of that and therefore have the courage, like these group of people, to stand firm. So lesson one, we are under attack. We are under attack. 
haven't got time to plot it this morning, but behind all the growth of opposition in Acts, you can see a spiritual reality that's gaining momentum. And uh, uh, it comes to this crescendo, as we said, in verse 12. We're under attack. It's easy to think that we're not under attack. It's easy to think that the problem today is not that the church is being persecuted, because, well, it doesn't seem to be, but that we're not under attack, people are just disinterested. But that's where the subtlety comes. Because actually what's happening almost every single moment of every day is that we, the people of God, uh, are being attacked by the isms. By the isms of our world. Maybe, maybe if people came and closed down our church and stopped us worshipping, it would be obvious enough for us to stand against it. This is far more subtle and therefore, in my opinion, much more dangerous. And it has wreaked havoc across the Western world absolute havoc and rendered the church almost utterly impotent because we've been attacked by the isms. Secularism has attacked our culture and our church. The abandonment of spiritual things. That's one attack. On another side you have humanism. Everything can be explained from our human point of view. We are ourselves autonomous. Liberalism. There is no one out there that can say something above me or or bring something that is bigger and more demanding authority-wise than I am myself. I am my own boss. Or pluralism. Anything goes. And it's been this subtle. Secularism uh, was like a wave that came and everyone went, well, spiritual stuff is a load of rubbish. And so uh, we got very modern and into science and everything that's spiritual, well, that's just for people that don't engage their brains. And then because that didn't work, we now live in a culture that has become very spiritual and you would think that's a win-win. But as the tide of being spiritual came in, so did this ism of pluralism that said you can be spiritual in any way you like. And it's caused havoc in our churches, and in our world. Existentialism. Another ism. My pleasure matters most. So we could go on. Maybe the biggest one, uh, and the most dangerous one for us, is syncretism. Syncretism. And we have been attacked full on with this philosophy of syncretism that says you can do what you want in your way and I'll do what I want in my way because in the end it's all about the same God. We hear that all the time. All the time. And that's why we've got the freedom to be who we are this morning providing we do not choose to present it or to seek in any way to impose it on anybody else. And what does that do? It makes the church powerless. It says, you can be the church, but don't speak. Because you'll offend. And the one absolute that everybody dances to today is that ability to respect other people, and yes, we should, in terms of their humanity. But it reaches a level today where we cannot disagree because to disagree is somehow to offend. And many of you are working in environments like that. And what's it done? Paralyzed us. It's produced the same fear that makes us impotent 
that these Christians experienced because of the full-on attack of Herod. And we find ourselves in the same place. That's why Jesus said, look, this is what you need to know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just me. And just in case they didn't get it, he says, no one. No one else. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was the deal. That's why through the New Testament, it hardly ever talks about we worship God. It talks about giving worship to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very particular. Very clear. And we've ended up in a pickle because our culture and we receive it into our churches has caused us to live out of the same fear that these people in Acts were living out of. Number two then, praying, our second lesson, is that prayer is the most effective weapon. Prayer is our most effective weapon. Whatever kind of attack is coming. Now the interesting thing is, uh, 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 we might have been uh, tempted, had we been these people, to mobilize ourselves in action. You know, I feel so strongly about this, I'm going to write King Herod a letter. And sometimes we have that sentiment, don't we? Good old middle class rebellion. I'm going to write a letter. That'll sort them out. Send them an email. Give them a piece of my mind. They could have done perhaps humanly, or maybe not, all kinds of things, or been tempted to try all kinds of things. But they understood that behind the power, the human power, was a spiritual power. And they could defeat that spiritual power by putting their trust in the God who is the power of all powers. And so you're lining up against one another. They get on their knees. Not instead of acting in any way, but they get on their knees as part of the fight. Now some of you will know that in prayer. Prayer is like a fight sometimes. It's like warfare. Because you're standing in the spiritual realm against opposing spiritual forces. So this is not about uh, uh, prayer instead of action, or certainly not about action instead of prayer, but this is about prayer being the action. Prayer makes a difference in the spiritual world. In the end, that's all they did in this chapter was to pray, and it's an amazing result, don't you think? All they did was pray, because they understood that prayer was the work. And again, we've, we, we've, we've sort of bought into this culture that, that the church is all about doing and it's about organizing our meetings and our programs and stuff. And then we pray that God would help us with our meetings and our programs, which says that our programs and our meetings are the main thing. And prayer is just there in some kind of supporting role to our programs and our meetings. And God says, no, prayer is the deal. What if you didn't have any programs and meetings, but you just prayed? What if you were a church that was as effective as Acts chapter 12 and you didn't do anything? Some of you are going, that's an interesting kind of church. But that's what we're seeing here. The only thing we can do is pray, so we will pray with all of our hearts. Prayer is the heart of the work, the foundation of the castle, not the flag on the top. And so they prayed. Uh, and their prayer was, uh, was well, it, it had all kinds of characteristics associated uh, with it. 
It involved the crowd. Hey, the, the gang said, we're, we're praying. I, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Well, for how long? How long were they praying? How long was this 24-7? How, how long did they just keep praying for him? We don't know what else to do, but the God of heaven is on our side, and he is the greatest power. The God of heaven is on our side, and he brings resurrection out of any kind of death. So we're praying, because that's the work God has called us to be. I, I will make my house, my temple, my church, a house of prayer. Because that's the work. That's what shifts things. That's what makes things happen. And so there they were. For how long? But it was a crowd. The church was praying. Together. And so on. It was corporate. As well as being uh, a crowd. They, they had times when, well, what does it mean the church was praying? Did they stop their job? Did they stop everything else they had to do? Did they not make any meals? I don't know, but I doubt it. They lived a life that was praying, and they came together. So this evening, they were all together, or at least a good group of them, a house group, a small group, was together in the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And so they kept up this vigil. All of them together, on their own and together, expressing this uh, coming together to pray that in this situation, the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. May God's will in the heavens be done on earth. Isn't that what Jesus said to pray? Praise the Father in heaven and then pray, your will, heaven's will be done on earth. And so they clinged on to heaven's will. What's heaven's will here in these moments? And for how long, I don't know, but they were committed to it. That's for sure. And there was a cost. And there was a cost. Some of them prayed through the night that night. There was a cost. Time. Other things that didn't get done. Sleep, deprivation. Maybe there was a, a cost. But they prayed. And the chapter moves just so very quickly, doesn't it? The, uh, the, the details about the way Peter escaped from prison are fascinating, but God could do it any old way, really. Uh, I, I love the thinking about, why did God decide to do it like that? Well, we'll have a few angels, and we'll have the chains fall off here, and those gates will open here. God can do what he wants. He chose to do it that way. And Peter's a bit kind of coming to his senses, not sure where he is. The people in the house are praying so hard, when Peter comes to the door, they don't even let him in. Uh, don't even see the answer to their prayer. We're sometimes like that, aren't we? The answer is just there. We don't have to settle for this. We do not have to bow to the kingdoms of this world. And behind the kingdoms of this world are the rulers and authorities of the dark world in which we live. The rulers of this world. Satan and his dominions cast down out of heaven that you can read about in Revelation. They're there and they're real, but in the end, there is a ruler. There is a saviour. There is one who can cause every death to end in resurrection. And so the word of God continued to increase and spread. It was as if the whole power of this world was thrown at them. And in the end, they just shrugged it off like, um, I don't know, Samson breaking out of the fetters, you know, the big chains as if they're just little, uh, little cotton straps. I don't know, there's some cartoon character that does that, I'm sure. Just breaks out of the, it's just, that's the image. They were wrapped around everything that this world, and they broke out 
Because prayer opens the doors that this world would always shut. And we're being persecuted all of the time. We don't use that language because we think of persecution uh, as as physical and uh, abusive uh, 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 things that are happening around the world. And some horrendous things are happening to Christians around the world today. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are in places that that are humanly intolerable. But they're trusting God and God's doing amazing things in them and among them. So we tend to think that that's just not happening. But it's more subtle and it's more devious. And you might say it's more real. And so you and I are part of the least even uh, evangelized part of the world in terms of those parts of the world that have heard the gospel. We're we're the ones needing desperate help now. We're the ones in big trouble. It's time for the church of God to pray and see doors open. Let's stand together, shall we? Ephesians 6 again, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I'm inviting you to think of a scenario in your life where you're feeling anything but strong. Many of you are already there. You're just tuned in straight away. You're aware of it so much. In that place, you can be strong in the Lord. In that place you can stand because of his mighty power. In that place you can put on the full armor of God and take your stand against the devil's schemes so that every day you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Lord, would you awaken us to see a spiritual reality behind our human situations? Would you awaken us to see as a church that our fight is not against people around here that don't know you, not against people that are antagonistic towards you, not against people that have all-out hatred towards you. Our fight is against the rulers and powers of this dark age that have waged war on our land, that have robbed us of our heritage as a Christian nation, that have destroyed our values, that have washed against our shores a a multitude of isms that have come in and pulled the rug from underneath us, that have put spears quite literally into the hearts of our communities, of our nation, of our families. It's time for the church to stand. Sing, my Jesus, my Saviour, and in the middle it says, forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Forever I'll say, no, I won't put up with this. We'll stand. As we cry out to God for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand, because nothing compares to the promise that I have in you. We win. The promise I have, resurrection. The promise I have, his presence to the end of the age. The promise I have, he that is in me is greater than he that's in the world.
Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you.